listening to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. I'm so thrilled to bring you season two, and I've called it The Boys Club, stories of people who are smashing the patriarchy in sport. In season two, I'm lifting my eyes and lifting my focus to the whole system of sport. I know from the work that I do with clients in both the business and sport areas, it's important to fix systems and remove barriers that prevent women from all walks of life, from all ages and stages in all sports on and off the field. I know it's important to remove barriers for those women to be successful. So my guests on season two are diverse. They are people of different genders, they're in different geographies and of course different parts of the sporting sector. What season two guests all have in common is that they are agitating, advocating and activating for gender equality in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is created on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I also celebrate the massive contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples have made to sport, and I acknowledge their contribution across the world. Welcome back, listeners, to the next episode of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. And as you know, in this second season where I'm focusing on or or having discussions with people who are operating at a system level to level the playing field for women in sport. And it's my very great pleasure to have Professor Claire Hanlon with me today. How do you introduce yourself now that we're back in, you know, almost back? I I, I shudder to say post-pandemic because as sure as easy you say something like that and you know what happens, but we're now enjoying greater freedoms after two years of not being having those freedoms, uh, particularly here in Victoria where you and I live. But when you bump into someone uh, at a function or, or out and about and they say, oh, hello, who are you and what do you do? What do you say? Michelle, first of all, thank you for having me on this fantastic series. So what you're doing is great and uh, an absolute honour to be here. So if someone bumps into me, uh, how do I introduce myself? Apart from uh, noting I'm Claire rather than a Professor Hanlon, it's more so Claire, it's the person, and that's really important. And the focus is I'm also interested in building organisational capacity to encourage women as leaders and players in sport. And when I refer to women, it's it's women and girls. That's the main focus area that that I do do. And and it's building capacity. It's it's looking at the positive side rather than the negatives. We've got too many. If you think about the broader picture, we have too many negatives around us. So it's looking at the positive. Let's build capacity. Let's get in this together. Let's collaborate. What can we do to move forward together? It's more of that folk. I really appreciate that. And as you and I have, and in fact, you and I did bump into each other at a sports function a few weeks ago, which is why I went, yes, thank you, universe, because I've been wanting to interview you for ages. So, But I, I really appreciate that building capacity for women and girls because you're right. And one of the things that I observe often is there's a lot of and I do my fair share of it, but, you know, shaking our fist at the sky at the injustice of, of everything. But how do we get on? How do we crack on and create solutions to what have, you know, really problem, what are problems around inequity that have been around for a long, long time? So with, and we're, I'm going to go more into what that capacity building looks like um, and how you enable, you particularly enable people like me to get on and with, with some of those solutions because we're all part of this beautiful ecosystem of, of capacity builders and solution creators. But I, um, 
I start off asking my guests around the, when did you have the aha moment? You know, when, when was it for you personally that you thought there is something going on here that I want to get myself involved in and I want to move from beyond, uh, perhaps outrage and into the advocacy, um, uh, sort of scenario for, for women and girls in sports. So number one, when did you become aware that there was something to be tackled? And was it one thing or was it as kind of a series of many things? started off when I was conducting my PhD and it was focusing on major sport events and I was interviewing the key managers nationally of major sport events. And it hit me then, I'm only interviewing males, what's the problem here? And I looked into this broader from major sport events then into sport generally and couldn't believe (laughs) what I found in relation to where are the women. And that was the aha moment. Now, look, I'm sure beforehand there are other instances, but it didn't hit me as hard as when it did when I started looking at the evidence and seeing the gaps. That was back in um, 98, 1998. So you can imagine what it was like back then. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And uh, it's kind of, well, let's work at this and let's try and, see how we can address it and uh, I moved from that topic then as soon as I finished my PhD into sport into the leadership component into um, more of the strategic planning to see how can we move from and and stimulate the top as well as the bottom because we need to work on all levels in order to create change that's achievable. Yeah that the, the top-down, bottom-up approach, um, I, I've got a great friend and mentor, Susan Colantuna, who said, you know, there's no point getting a whole bunch of women <clears throat> uh, enabled, you know, build their capacity and capability and visibility if there's nowhere for them to go because all you're going to have is a bunch of women who become very aware of how capable uh, they are as leaders and they have nowhere to go. And and f- for you, I wonder, um, as because – there are so many of us who suddenly find ourselves suddenly, I, I don't know if it's suddenly is the right word, but we find ourselves doing some kind of work in our field of expertise or passion. For me, my passion is sport and going exactly as you said, where are the men? I mean, beg your pardon, where are the women and what's going on here? So when, so you're doing your PhD, you're looking into the, the broader ecosystem of sport, but I, I, I want to pick up on a part of what you said around leadership. So that, that top down piece. How did you start to create, I, I guess, that the tools to build capacity? Um, and I suppose for me, how did you start to build the awareness that, excuse me, sport ecosystem, we've got a problem here that we need to solve and I'm going to set about doing that. So, what did you do about it? I'm a learner. I want to learn all the time. So I went out into the industry and I started talking to men and I started talking to women and to identify why aren't there more women in leadership positions. And the aha moment back then hadn't uh, really hit many people um, as much as what it should have. And just listening to the needs of women, listening to uh, why men think thought back then that it was not why. Why is there a need to? And so that then showed, okay, it was a lack of understanding. Let's increase awareness. Let's showcase the need. Let's identify why is there a need 
to have women in leadership positions. And it's not just for women as leaders. It's for the benefit of the organisation. From a financial, social capacity, there's a whole range of reasons why. And so it's a matter of identifying the need. So a a lot of time um, people either disagree um, because I, they may have facts, but a lot don't have facts. It's on personal opinion. So let's help them and let's provide the evidence. So then that will help their learning. It will help with their discussions, build their knowledge so that they can act and say, actually, this is good for us. It's um, And apart from the, the folks who are never going to get there, and I, I often say there's there's the three types of people there's the evangelists at one end you know you and I and, and others like us who were there out there doing stuff there's the folk at the other end I call, you know unkindly or kindly call them the dinosaurs probably going to become extinct just like the dinosaurs at some point but then there's the rest of society who you know that movable middle um, who haven't yet made up their mind or paid attention to the matter for one reason or another and that you know not right, not wrong, um, but you're right, bringing that awareness. And when you started to, so it's obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I'm assuming that you started to to research. That's when you started to build a body of evidence and, and the research around the business case. So beyond this is the right thing to do, and I'll, I want to talk about how we might have swung back to some of that right thing to do mindset, but beyond the right thing to do, building the case for change and building those facts and that and that body of evidence, what did that look like for you? And what were the what were the things that you actually did? And well, I, I know some of them, um, but uh, that you continue to do. But what were the things that you did? There were a range of things, Michelle. It varied as to what the topic was. Uh, when you you could talk about leadership, you could talk about participation, you could talk about the organisation, building the organisation, you could talk about the individual, you could talk about the importance of people around the individual to move them forward from a career journey or it might be from a support journey in relation to what they need as a leader. So there's a number of variables that happen. I'm only interested in um, research that creates change. Um, that that and for me that's really important. I'm driven. I'm evidence based driven to create change. Now, if uh, people in the industry don't uh, get it or they don't um, understand, that means the story isn't strong enough in how they view and how they understand people. Not one size fits all. So we can't expect to have the same story fit the same person and them to understand. So for me, I, I consider um, rather than um, I, I suppose it's my way of navigation and navigating to create that change, and it's it's telling the story in a manner that people understand. And if they don't understand it one way, well, it means I have to go back and I have to change my story to make it so that they understand the outcomes, the impact, the benefits for them. And that's where it's very important. We don't create change for the sake of creating change. We, For me, we create change for the benefit of our community as a whole. And it's not just for girls and women. It's for families. It's for the whole broad. It's for men. It's for the membership of the organisation. So we've got to look at it in that capacity. You know, once again, telling that story in a way that the the recipient can hear and appreciate it, but more importantly, make change is, is such an important part, an important 
in thing for me as well because you're right. One of my favourite sayings is one size doesn't fit all. We, we just, and this is why 40 plus years down the track, I know that um, diversity, equity and inclusion in, initiatives, particularly around gender equality, workplace gender equality and, and sport as a workplace, um, have failed uh, to, to make an, a, an impact because quite simply <coughs> organisations, well-meaning, um, have, have looked for off-the-shelf solutions to go, all right, we'll whack everyone into, everyone being women, into a mentoring program and, and that'll be great. And I, I have waffled on about this before, so I won't bore my poor listeners to death with it, but it, it is not the solution. But importantly, getting underneath, you know, underneath the hood and really understanding that organisation or, or, or that particular part of the industry to say what's going on here. That requires a fair bit of effort, Claire. What about, um, gee, Captain Obvious, Michelle, big statement. But so the effort that you and your team undertake, I'm interested in process now, so I'm kind of deviating into, in, in your work <clears throat> where you are with your team, how, who comes to you to commission a piece of work to, to assemble the facts, the evidence and a story that's really going to resonate with change makers? How does that process actually work? It varies. People come to me because they know that I'm passionate and wanting to create change based on the, I'm very much translating research into practices. And that is so important for me. There's no point research for the sake of research. Let's translate it. Let's make it so that it becomes uh, a practice. It becomes um, embedded into organisational strategies. And that is vital. It's tough to do that translation, but it's something that I've mastered over the years and the team uh, that we're helping to develop in the context of of expanding um, the capacity. So we're working nationally, internationally as well on projects in order for that to happen. Um, Michelle, I, I, it goes back to also the need of also what organisations, where's the need in the industry? Where Because we have a look at um, not only people coming to us, but we also have a look at what are the needs in the industry? Who can we bring in as collaborators? You can't work by yourself. It does not and so how can we embed practices in the industry with collaborators? Where's the buy-in? And so for me, it's very much bringing people together to create an outcome that's mutual and will be embedded. And I think that's a key thing. So it's people coming to me and it's me going out into the industry as well. It, absolutely terrific. And and, and as, as I've said to you one-on-one -on -one many times, I'm the a very, very fortunate beneficiary of the work that you do because it helps to fuel conversations when I'm in, in my clients' workplaces and, and you know, in, in the industry more broadly because, yeah, we do still have to fall back on oh, – actually, I'm going to contradict myself. I see less – demand for a business case now than than I've ever seen. So when I first started doing this work, it was Michelle help us build the case for change, i.e. let's do a business case that has to go to the executive and the board for some you know, insert an initiative name here. I don't think I've done a business, I I've probably haven't done one for five years in, in all honesty. Um, so I'm not <clears throat> having to prove it anymore. But in saying that, what I'm now seeing is 
let's let's look at some of this empirical data, but also let's look at what we've done and start to measure our success and figure out what we've done that's worked and do more of it and kind of abandon what hasn't worked um, and or shelve it for the time being. So you're, the stuff that you do, that research is, is so incredibly important. Michelle, what, what I might say is with that, I think a really great change that's happened, and I agree in that context, but also organisations are being more open, they're being more public, they're reporting, and that's showing the industry of saying, hey, this is where we're at, we acknowledge where we're at, we acknowledge we need to move forward. I think that honesty helps and it shows that uh, we need to move forward. We can't be stagnant uh, and there's always progress we need to make. So that benchmarking, monitoring, evaluation is key and that's what organisations are doing. They're now realising that evidence is needed to showcase, celebrate change, but at the same time recognise where they need to keep going. That's, for me, vital, and that's what I'm very heavily involved in in the industry, my research team. I've got a wonderful person, Susan Alberti, who certainly um, works and, and things need to be done ASAP, which is fabulous, and why can't they? So I think she and I bounce ideas off lots, and I think that's an exciting thing as well. Uh, change our game program in Victoria. I think that's also another attributor to further stimulate what needs to be done. And, and I think having resources and support around you and positive energy just keeps you moving in that context. Despite what's happened in the last couple of years, people, we're strong. We are strong within ourselves and our community, providing we have that positive support around us as well. And I think it goes back to, Michelle, when you said at the start, how do you introduce yourself? I'd like to think that um, I'm helping people around me and people around me, we're, we're supports. And I think that's very much part of, of how we can move forward together. I, um, I'm so pleased that you brought Sue into the, the conversation because she's uh, obviously very uh, – so for, for our listeners who aren't aware of who Susan Alberti is, um, Sue is is someone – well, she's got a book called The Footy Lady, so that probably um, – <clears throat> for those of you who know, I'm a, a bit of a footy tragic, the, the Australian rules game, and uh, I, I have admired Sue from afar for a long time and now am, am very pleased to, to count her in, in my – you know, as a person in my network, or no, actually, I'm in her. So that that's let's be real. But um, she's a, a great philanthropist and someone who is has been operating at that system level in sport for women for a long, long time. And she has been a game changer, Claire. I was so pleased when she and you set up your your research um, foundation and really started to say, you know, we need to look at the system and start putting funding, basically putting the money where it needed to go to to provide, as you said, that body of evidence, those stories. In saying that, there's another person. So I've interviewed Moya Dodd as well for this uh, for this series. And we had a really interesting conversation about Title IX um, out of the US. And I've said, you know, here in Victoria and Australia, where you and I are, um, and the fabulous Sue Alberti, the Change Our Game program you know, it, it, it's kind of a, 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 for me, a Title IX light. Um, it, although in saying that, I think it's had significant impact for uh, a whole bunch of things, not least of which is the representation of women on boards in sport. So, you know, I think where I'm going with this is looping back to you saying there's a whole bunch of us working together. We need to collaborate, not compete. And we've all got our kind of lanes. Sometimes they, they cross into each other, but, you know, I think it's just so, so important that that people are aware of this work that you and your team are doing um, and how to 
get be recipients of that work. So with that, let, let's just talk very practically and I'll put it in the show notes. But I I know you send out a regular digest uh, to a whole bunch of people. and But how do people find out more about you, your work um, and, and of the foundation and, and of your team? Would love people to click on, just Google Victoria University Women in Sport. Now, if you Google that, up comes this amazing site that focuses on research findings. Um, also, Michelle, you referred to every quarter, for the first time globally, this has happened where every quarter there's an update of research articles, industry reports, industry insights, and that's then uh, provided on a range of topics regarding women in sport. And that's why it's a global first because it only focuses selfishly on women in sport in, in specific areas, and that might be leadership, participation, infrastructure, health. And uh, that commonly, we uh, promote that through Clearing House of Sport. We, people might reach out to me and say, Claire, can I be on your list? And I'll directly send them the updated version that day. Um, so that's a really key thing. That's on the website as well. Our focus is creating no boundaries for girls and women in sport. And that site helps from a research, a teaching, a career journey perspective, um, what we're doing uh, from a... a obtaining info, uh, infographics, guides, resources. Uh, Sue's in there as well about her contribution. So there's a whole range of things. It's an active learning site that you can download knowledge. We're about to do a launch, and I can't say anything, but it'll be within the next month, another first in Australia, which will be brilliant in regards to uh, women in sport and what we're doing on that site. So very stay tuned, I think. Uh, which is really good. Well, by the time this this because uh, we're recording this in uh, the well, I was going to say the early part. It's around Easter here in in twenty twenty two, and by the time this podcast episode uh, is released, we'll be able to put the links into what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, and so for for listeners, for administrators, and leaders on the call, I cannot recommend highly enough or more emphatically enough uh, to, to subscribe to this uh, periodical that Claire and her team put out. It is valuable. And, you know, even if you take one thing out of it to say that this is the one thing we can do in our club, in our organisation, in our part of the industry to really level the playing field for women and girls, um, you know, that is a good thing. And as you've said right at the start, facts, evidence, stories, it's just such a great way to engage. Let me flip the script a little bit though um, and I want to talk about your leadership and specifically leadership under duress. Now, it's no newsflash to you, Claire, that this is hard work, this work that, that I, you know, I, people say to me, why did you choose this work? And I say, I don't know, I think it chose me, but there, there would be, I wouldn't be the first person working in the equity space to say, man, this is hard but rewarding. But for you. What does duress look like when you're really trying to push forward? Now, I'm, I'm, I, I catapulted myself back to 1998 when you said this is when you know you were first researching. I thought, gee, where was I in 1998? Probably in the stage of, you know, perpetual outrage. I was living in the in Western Australia, and you know, obviously a lot younger than I am today. But you must have bumped up against some significant barriers personally, professionally, and from a, a macro area. So what does that duress look like when you're trying to smash the patriarchy in sport? 
it was the voice back then. I, Michelle, it was also me. I would go to a sport management academic conference and I'd be the only woman. And so to present findings, evidence, where you have a room full of men, it was the voice and them looking at me and it's like, how do you get this across in the context where it's going to create um, meaning they're going to walk away with something rather than are we taking her for real? So it really... I had to change my first experience then. Unfortunately, now sport management conferences, it's it's not an issue. We have so many women involved in research now, which is brilliant. But uh, it's a matter of trying to change your story to ensure that the meaning comes across. And so when I present, when I talk to people, the way I do that varies in each situation in order to for people to understand and to get that blank face removed. If people have got blank faces in front of me, you can see they don't get it and I need to change my story. So I navigate very much in that context of reading people, reading the audience and and going from there. Uh, Otherwise, if I just said, oh, they don't get it and walk away, I'm not going to get a message across. What's the point? So it's for me it's turning it around and saying what can I do to assist navigate to assist people learn I used to be a primary school teacher and so and I majored in child psychology and I tell you what some of those um uh, some tips that I picked back there I still use nowadays and it works and uh it's it's very much of how do we get around how do we teach people in a way that they understand and what can I do to create that understanding Oh, you've just given me an idea, Claire, because my daughter, my very talented daughter, yes, I'm a biased uh, parent, but my very talented daughter is a primary school teacher and a math specialist. I think I might be plugging in to get some coaching from Kelsey about that, <laughs> about those techniques. I think, I think you're, you've, you're onto something there. So, but again, you're coming back to the story and you've got this real empathy. Uh, you know, it comes off you in waves and, and listeners, if you ever have a chance to, to meet Claire in person and, and have a chat, please do because it just, it does, it rolls off her in waves. You know, you know, I feel listened to when, when we speak, Claire. And I'm, and I think even I can imagine as you're telling this story, because you're a great storyteller, that the recipients of your message, because you are using your, not insignificant EQ skills to read the room and read the response. Um, you're adjusting in the moment because you want that story to land. You want them to have the aha moment, have really feel um, what it is. And I think that's a, I don't know, I feel that the last few years have really taught us a lot as leaders about vulnerability and about empathy and about curiosity is such extraordinary skills for business or for, for and for, for life. But so I feel that's a real that's a real call to action for a lot of us. Focus on the audience. Well, how do they need to hear the story so then they can take action? I was just going to say, in light of that, then the prime story uh, was the sport uniform. And in relation to uh, what girls want out of sport uniforms, and based on the research findings, we had a 40-page report. So how do you translate that so that it is very clear for people in the industry, in the school as well as in the sport industry, to understand a simple key message that they think oh, actually, this makes sense. We know that, but here's the evidence. And that's why the infographic, and again, thanks to Change Our Game for that to initiate, the first study went out about what girls want. And there was a 
basically a three-page infographic that came out and based on their morning dark-coloured pants, their morning T-shirts, shorts, um, breathable material. And based on that, that went viral. It was fabulous. And it did go viral, <laughs> yes. It was really wonderful. And I even had male PE teachers contact me saying, thank you, we've been needing this to present to our parent group in order to try and change its a, it's a boy-cut uniform into, and one very excited three weeks later said, I've presented it, we've now got female-cut shorts. Um, my next um, step is the T-shirt. I'm thinking, oh, my God. Why are people very archaic? Why do we need to justify this? But if this is what it takes, I had a, a Gaelic football team from Ireland, a woman reach out to me saying, we are having women saying they're leaving and they have left because of our uniform. Can you send us your infographic? We want to present it to our association. Very excited email back. We've gone from white shorts to navy shorts. We've gone from tight red tops to loose red tops. and. For me, that wasn't enough because this is great what girls want, but let's put it into the system. Let's embed it into the system. So that's where the next study came out of saying, well, let's have a look at the positives. Let's look at organisations that have created uniform policies and created that change to enable choice and options for girls and women. We had three case studies, swimming, cricket and netball. Now, based on the, we surveyed the girls and women before and after changes were created, 50% of girls and women said that they will remain in their sport, playing that sport now because of the uniform. So based on these key changes because of uniform policies, again, we put it out there. Again, I've had over 40 media interviews and it's now in the House of Wellness. It's going to be viewed on a TV series. It's... Because change does occur, this is a positive, these are the effects, let's celebrate it. And, again, let's translate it so that sport organisations look at this and say, oh, my God, this is so obvious, why can't we do this? So it's that storyline that needs to be told, that's simple, that is positive and that creates a domino effect to encourage others. It's a very hard of human-centred design, isn't it? What are the unmet needs of the of the target market? And and I certainly know from <clears throat> my days as a as a very eager and, and willing parent on netball committees, remembering poor tiny little kids, you know, eight year olds at eight AM at Gerald's Park in the winter here in Melbourne, running around with their tiny little skirts and, you know, we would struggle to get a concession to have the, them wear their tracksuit pants or what have you because, A, it was freezing. But then, of course, as as those young people start to, to hit um, pre-puberty and puberty, we, well, you know better than I do, the dropout rates, the attrition rate of, of young women, girls from sport because of body image issues and, frankly, uniforms that don't fit. Fast forward, um, you know, we'll go forward in, in to me now and I'm, I'm, I'm having this really interesting conversation with a sports T-shirt or apparel um, provider uh, here in in, uh, in Australia about can we please have T-shirts because I do love a statement T-shirt, but can we please have T-shirts that actually fit women with hips because I got hips, man, and, you know, these straight cut boxy T-shirts, they might look good on, you know, from the neck to the boobs, but that's about it. So it's such an important thing for us not to feel left out so that we can participate in whatever way we want to in the sport. And, you know, I, I, it's, I, I, I've got to say that, you know, that the piece around the uniforms was 
groundbreaking. I agree. I know why it went viral because it hit a chord with so many women who have had lived experience of not having uniforms that fit, have probably um, left sport as a result of it. But we're now seeing the next generation experience that as well. But I think what's really important Oh, go on. Yep. Yeah, no, I must give a shout out. Swimming is um, Victoria and they have certainly promoted long length swimmers, short um, swimmers. But Nepal Victoria, because of the evidence that we provided with these two research, they sent me, they have changed their bylaw, the most exciting part that they're encouraging all their associations throughout Victoria to do, and that is to enable, uh, because initially it was, yes, we're having our team can decide whether they all wear shorts or they all wear a skirt. And I was saying, well, how about individuals? Because not all girls might want to wear the same bottoms. They've changed the bylaw and they've been brilliant because they recognise the needs of girls and women are different. And so, for example, as long as it's the team colour, they could, individuals can wear a skirt, shorts or pants providing the association approves of that. Now, that's pretty exciting. That is just, for me, uh, icing on the cake and, and well done for that to happen. I agree. I agree. Good on you, Rosie and uh, and Netball Victoria. That's uh, <clears throat> I'm not surprised given the CEO there. She's she's a bit of a legend. So um and, and of course everyone there. But I guess the you know that one of the other points that I want to bring in there as well and uniforms is such a great way to catapult into another body of research that I was very very interested in that that you and your team undertook was around culturally and linguistically diverse women in sport because <clears throat> as Many of you will know I have a, a fabulous joint venture with with uh, my best friend Div Pillay for culturally diverse women. And when I talk about my work in sport, I'm kind of I'm not in our talking with our cowled communities. There's not a lot going on there, and we we just don't see culturally and linguistically diverse women, but also people more broadly represented in sport. Aside from perhaps um, from a from a, I guess, fandom perspective around cricket, but, and I don't want to be too stereotypical, but that, that was really insightful, that work, Claire. And, and what did it highlight? Again, I'm thinking about the facts, the evidence and the story. What was the story that came out of your research into why culturally diverse women are not represented in sport? Really interesting one was comparing the women who aspired to lead in sport from culturally diverse backgrounds that weren't leaders compared to those that were current leaders. Those that aspired to be leaders they had more negative attitudes about when they actually got there as to what their experience would be like than the leaders themselves that were in the sport. So basically it's showing the perception of women from culturally diverse backgrounds that want to get into sport to lead. It was more negative because once they got in there. So what it shows is that sport needs to have a strong message as to how inclusive it is and what strategies it has to attract and retain women from culturally diverse backgrounds. Because if you've got women who aren't in sport that want to be leaders in sport but they're worried to get in because of the barriers they may face, uh, it's the stigma associated with sport, how are you going to get them in? So there needs to be a change in the storyline from sport to show how inclusive it is. That might be um, (laughs) ensuring there's more than one woman um, or person from a culturally diverse background in the senior leadership team. It might mean not putting that person a, from uh, who's culturally diverse as the uh, cultural diverse 
leader, put them in finance, put them in the CEO. So I think that's important too. It's, it's fascinating that the perception of sports are not a welcoming place. Now, probably going to contradict myself here because clearly some of the the calling out that folks like you do and I do and, and others to us to say, here's the problem and this is what we need to do to fix it. But it's a really fine line between highlighting the work that we've still got to do, but also saying, but gee whiz, this is a great environment. You know, in, in the first season of, of the podcast, I talked to Alison Dodd, who's the first woman president of Strathmore Cricket Club, hundred and what, however many years, but anyway. So, and Alison really talks about what a great environment cricket has been for her to hone her business and her leadership skills uh, and a whole bunch of, and, and, you know, just all these skills and all this benefit that has, has what, you know, been woven throughout her whole life and her career. I think it's a really fine line and particularly in the, in the context of underrepresented communities, in this case, culturally and linguistically diverse women. How do we say we've got a gap and we need to close it, but we don't want to use that data to drive a perception that this is not a welcoming environment because it, it is. Um, yes, we've got work to do, but it is and it can be so beneficial. How do we, how do we balance that, Claire? Again, it goes back to showcasing. Again, it goes back to having the voice of women from culturally diverse backgrounds, getting them involved in strategic planning, um, uh, key decision-making, because that's where you've got the perceptions, you've got a different lens, you've got that inclusion concept. And it's not only women from culturally diverse backgrounds, women with disability. I'm working on a project um, in relation to women with disability and the lens that they provide is incredible uh, from a context of the powerful uh, voice they have for not only women and not only women if they do have families, but also people with disability. And if you have a look at it from that lens side, key decision-making, getting those people from minority groups involved is vital. Uh, as, as we're talking, I'll, you know, this will be a reverse plug, but next week the final interview in the current series of the podcast goes live with Hannah McDougall, who you would uh, know as well. Um, one, one of the interesting things, uh, talking to Hannah about her lived experience as a disabled woman in sport, a Paralympian, was some of the lack of data around the lived experience of disabled women in sport. But but where I focus, like you, is on leadership and the non-athlete. So in the, in the context of the non-athlete, how many women who identify as, as disabled are in positions of leadership, are in the structures that are shaping sport? And so, yeah, I'm, I'll be very, very interested to see more on that because I think, you know, there, there's, again, I keep coming back, um, evidence, facts and stories, which you, you've just, it's, it's the theme, evidence, facts and stories. What are, what's the evidence? What are the facts and what are the stories about how powerful it is to have culturally and linguistically diverse women, to have women with a disability, LGBTIQ women as part of your community and part of your leadership community that's shaping your sport or, or your club or your organization? Why is it important? Well, we, we did talk, we, said the business case doesn't need to be spoken about much more, but we know that it's so powerful because those women bring others with them um, and they also bring, obviously, their lived experience and say, hey, did you realise that, you know, we've got a, a facility that's not suitable for XYZ type person or uniforms um, or, 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 you know, just the, the 
the, the list continues on. So I must say, with um, Michelle, the uh, project we're doing with women with disability, it was a federal, it was a national project, and uh, we've amended it and enhanced it, and now it's state based. And it's women with um, who self-diagnose that they have a disability that they are actually leading uh, state sport organisations and community sport organisations to create inclusive environments. They're the mentors. They're the leaders. And these women are being employed. And that for me, that is vital. Get women, in this case, that self-diagnose that have a disability, get them employed, get them into the industry. And, and I, I think we are becoming more aware of this, but this is a strong story, a strong message we need to help tell. That includes women from culturally diverse backgrounds, LGBTIQ. It's all of these we, we need to make sure. We need to look at our senior leadership team and say, why are we all white? Why are we all from the same lens? And, hey, I'm blonde hair, blue-eyed. I'm the first advocate to be able to say, Where's your inclusiveness that's happening? Um, I'm honoured to be on the Off Cycling, the inaugural Off Cycling Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Group, and very much we're looking at strategic planning and and the group themselves, let alone um, what the strategy will be, is going to be really exciting for Off Cycling. So we need to make sure that we have a variety of lenses in order to tell the story and create a inclusive organisation. Yeah, and like you, I'm I'm blonde haired, albeit out of a bottle, uh, and green eyed, but white skinned. And I keep saying to people, we we actually don't. And and I'm middle aged because I'm going to live to 160. But anyway, no, 120. But um, but yeah, we actually don't need more women that look like me on boards. You know, educated, affluent, white. Um. We need more women who don't look like me so that we can have that variety of experiences. And I think I'm going to give a quick call to action. So for uh, folks that are like us, that are uh, are white, um, what space could we give up? You know, because we, we get to occupy space automatically. And what space could we give up for a person who could actually provide greater depth and breadth of experience than perhaps we could in a, in the sports environment. Now, whether that's on a committee, whether it's on the board, whether it's a speaking gig, um, where are you participating that perhaps your organisation or your sport could benefit from someone who didn't look like you and sound like you? And I think that's a – so I don't often give a call to action. I usually leave that for my guests, but you, you've, you've prompted me to say, you know, how do we step aside – and allow those women to step into that space because that's some of that is the advocacy that all of us um, have to undertake. And I think you know th- those are those those are the the simple actions. Speaking of simple actions and advocacy, it is it is where the rubber hits the road now. So how do we turn? How do we give our listeners some actionable insights? So I very much aim this this podcast at those leaders who can make change. So for for the call to action, there's and, and there's two. So there's the, the women who are doing the work and they are still bumping up against perhaps some of that duress, uh, bumping up against um, a lack of support um, and whether it be overt or covert. So first piece of advice, what's your call to action for the women who are really smoothing the way for the generations that come after them, Claire? How do they stay sane, keep doing what they're doing, um, 
you know, what do you do? I guess what, what have you done to keep doing what you're doing and what's your advice for those women who are still are doing this wonderful advocacy work? Believe in yourself, full stop. Uh, don't worry about the negative energy around you that does occur. Just believe in yourself, surround yourself with positive people, but people that have different views to your own because it's important to have a mixed lens. If you have the same people around you that the same, you, you're not going to get anywhere. But believe in yourself. That is so important. Uh, it's so easy to convince yourself, talk yourself out of things and start talking, is this really, um, should I be worried about what other people, uh, it, it's that context. It's recognising other people, listening to other people, but still believing in your focus, your drive. Uh, what you're doing, we need you, full stop. And we need and not only individuals, we need groups of people, we need organisations, women and men, to move forward with this. So that's a very nice segue into, so for our allies, our non-women allies, um, and they'll identify in many, many different ways, people who have power, who have influence, and can become active allies and advocates for women in sport. What do you want them to do? What's the one thing you want those powerful people to do? For them to set targets, for them to set whether it be targets or quotas, one of the best things was having the state government with the 40% uh, women on boards. And, you know, we can do this in high-performance coaches. We can do this with senior leadership teams. We can do this. And when it's women in sport, it's not just one woman. It is making sure that you have a group of women and it's not just one type of woman. It's having women from varied lenses. If you have quotas and targets and you publicly report them, that is so important and celebrate it. Publicly reporting, it's not it's, it's more celebrating. And these these are the outcomes, this is the impact. Because it creates we're a very competitive society sport in relation to organizations. If there's a great if there's something that's happening that's creating an outcome and an impact in one sport and it makes sense, there'll be a trickle effect. We don't want to trickle, though. We want to ripple. We want a quicker movement that happens, and I think that is one. Well, I'm going to – I think I couldn't agree more. Setting targets, and particularly when you've set targets or quotas uh, in the context of creating a more inclusive workplace or a more inclusive um, organisation is absolutely bang on. There would be no other part of the organisation that didn't have a target associated with it, whether it's on-field or off-field, financial or non-financial. And as the great Lisa Alexander said in Episode 1, sport is all about statistics and performance. And this is statistics and performance that is so incredibly, incredibly important. So absolutely bang on. What's one thing that you're hoping to see in sport in the next, well, I'd say 12 months, but gee whiz, time's pretty elastic, isn't it? What's the one thing you're really hopeful for? This was a really hard question, Michelle. One thing. Um, I'm greedy, and but if you're only giving me one, I would probably follow on from my last statement, and that is that for every national sport organisation to announce that they have a target for women in key leadership positions throughout their organisations, that being as high-performance coaches, that in the senior leadership team, you name it, officiating. It's across the board. If they could announce in 12 months that they have a target, and it might be towards 2032, but if they can just this year, in the next 12 months, announce that target, 
that is fantastic. Well, Claire, you are speaking my language because, as I said before, there is no other part of the organisation that doesn't have a target. So why wouldn't we have targets associated with having an organisation that is representative of the communities that we serve and live in and play in. So I, I couldn't agree more. So today we've heard from you about your terrific work, um, creating the capacity, the sporting industry to frankly take a lot of information uh, and you do that, I should say, by cr- taking a lot of information, a lot of research and turning that those facts, that evidence into stories, stories that that folks like me and others can say, oh, I know what to do with that. There's a fabulous infographic. Yes, it might have 40 pages of research that backs it, but there's an infographic that says, here are the couple of things I need to pay attention to. So we've heard that storytelling is just so important. Your amazing skills in telling those stories, but reading the room, um, and really invoking, you know, empathy uh, for the recipient of your messaging, your important messaging, um, and you know your your own attributes and traits of being a learner, lifelong learner, being curious, obviously emotionally intelligent, and how that's been so powerful in you, quite literally changing the game for women and girls in sport. But I just love the fact that we've closed on targets. It is such an important thing. And what I really appreciate appreciate about the work that you, Claire, is that, yes, we can have targets, but you've got that, all of the evidence, the facts and the stories that support those targets, number one being set and then number two being reported on. Again, evidence, facts and data, measures of success. So, Professor Claire Hanlon, thank you very much for sharing your time so generous, generously with us. And uh, and I look forward to seeing more of your amazing research. And as I said to listeners earlier, please do subscribe uh, to the, the, the quarterly emails. They are gold. And Claire, thank you from all of us and particularly the women in sport uh, and those girls who don't yet quite know just how important your work is to them. Thanks, Claire. Michelle, thank you very much. And can I also thank you for being you to for what you're doing and just being so comfortable with what you're doing and moving forward in your focus we need you so thank you oh, my pleasure my pleasure thank you for listening to our podcast i hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly take action wherever you may work in sport please if you enjoyed this episode leave us a rating it really helps to spread the word and of course please do share this episode with your friends with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport because together we can close the leadership gender gap.